Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, November the 7th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Later on in today's show, I'm going to be joined by our deputy political editor, Fia Kelly, and by columnist and author David McWilliams. But first out, the results of the US midterm elections came in overnight. American voters were deciding on the composition of the entire House of Representatives as well as one third of the Senate and a broad range of important state level elections, including some hotly contested governorships. As predicted in opinion polls, the Democrats won control of the House, but the Republicans made gains in the Senate, increasing their majority there. So what does this all mean for the Trump presidency and the next two years? Our Washington correspondent Suzanne Lynch joined me earlier. Suzanne, in your analysis of the results of this election, you uh, you say that those who hoped uh, that we would see a decisive repudiation of Donald Trump uh, will be disappointed by these results. Yes, I think there's a lot of hope that went into this election that it was it was on the Democratic side that this is going to be the first electoral verdict on the Donald Trump presidency two years after he was elected. Um, but in fact, there's, there's kind of something for, ev- for everyone from the results of this. Uh, Democrats uh, did very, very well in the House of Representatives, as expected. But as expected, Republicans did very well in the Senate and even better than some people expected. So I think what we're going to see from Donald Trump and from Republicans is a sigh of relief, essentially, at these results. There was a, there was a real worry on the Republican side that they could be facing a real wipeout. There could be a blue wave here that was going to manifest itself uh, in some of these results. That did not happen. And in fact, Republicans did better than expected in the Senate, much better than expected it now seems. Um, and that will definitely be a vindication for Donald Trump. Already um, late on Tuesday night, as the results were coming in, uh, we saw Donald Trump tweeting really along those lines. Um, calling it a tremendous result, etc. So I think his uh, decision to uh, campaign in certain states in the on the eve of the election um, paid off in a sense, or he can argue that they paid off. On Monday, he visited three states: Ohio, Indiana, Missouri. All those three states delivered for Republicans in the end. So uh, I don't think we'll be seeing much humility and soul searching by Donald Trump. I think he'll be, as I say, vindicated by this. And it really entrenches his position as uh, as the the owner of the Republican Party of the, of the modern Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, I think this is what's been so interesting over the last few years to to assess and try and analyse what way the Republican Party was going to go after the election of Donald Trump. We need to remember that a lot of people in the Repub- most of people in the Republican Party were, were opposed to Donald Trump's candidacy and were very uncomfortable with him becoming president. And then gradually, as he became ensconced in the White House, this opposition seemed to fade away and more and more members of the Republican Party rode in behind him. Now, I think uh, the fact that Republicans have done relatively very well in the Senate um, you know, is a vindication, as I say, for Donald Trump and his brand of politics. Um, yes, there are worrying signs for the Republicans on the House side, the fact that suburban votes went for Democrats, the fact that women votes went for Democrats, and that is a big problem. Donald Trump has not been able to bring any extra people with him. But ultimately, you know, there hasn't been a huge repudiation of his politics in these elections. Um, so I think uh, that, that that Donald Trump brand Republicanism um, it still exists now and has been strengthened, in a sense, going forward into the 2020 election campaign. And in terms of the what he's going to have to deal with on Capitol Hill now, obviously this increase in the Republican majority mm. in the Senate means that should there be further, for example, significant judicial appointments, there won't be the sort of knife-edge vote, knife votes that we've seen over the last over the last year or two because the, the Republicans will have a more comfortable majority so they won't be they won't be worrying about what, what a Susan Collins will, will be doing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. This gives them a lot more room in the Senate. People like Mitch McConnell will be very pleased with the results here. 
Um, so this this greater majority looks that they're going to have uh, is going to be a real boost. But at the same time, we're entering a whole different political landscape in the House. And now we're, we have essentially a divided government in Washington. We're going to have Donald Trump dealing with the democratically controlled House. That's going to bring its own problems. And that's going to be the real political focus now going forward in the next few months, how that plays out, how that dynamic between the new leader of the in the House, which we think maybe Nancy Pelosi, but that is by no means certain, and Donald Trump, how that dynamic works. I mean, surprisingly, in a sense, Donald Trump called uh, Nancy Pelosi late on Tuesday night to congratulate her on this uh, victory in the House. Um, there had been suggestions from the White House earlier on in the evening that that would not happen, even if the Democrats uh, took a majority in the House, which they did. Um, there's lots of noises from both sides now talking about bipartisanship, etc., talking about the need to unify but in reality, we could be looking at serious deadlock now in Washington as Donald Trump faces this new reality, as I said, of a of a democratically controlled House representatives. I think we always hear those noises about we must all come, the nation must all come together, and you know on the on the nights of elections, but it doesn't necessarily pan out like that. And there's already a lot of talk, even hearing it, you know, this morning about you know um, the the House seeking Donald Trump's tax returns, investigations mm. starting into various allegations of corruption and malfeasance in the current administration, mm. all kinds of things, which may sort of tie down the the administration in in legal knots for the next two years. Yes, absolutely. There's um, been an effort by the Democratic Party to talk down uh, issues of impeachment because that's one of the other uh, practical implications of this result. If the Mueller report will report at some point soon and it will fall to the House to decide whether to launch impeachment proceedings essentially against Donald Trump. Now, for impeachment to happen, it needs a two-thirds majority in the Senate. Um, But Democrats have been keen to talk down these impeachment uh, suggestions, all right, but there is a suggestion that they will seek to get more accountability from the president. They will now have subpoena powers. We're going to see Democrats taking control of key committees like the Judiciary Committee, the Ways and Means Committee. They will have powers to to, uh, request documentation from Donald Trump. They may not go as far as requesting his tax returns. That's been a hugely controversial issue since he's been elected. But they may start to probe uh, financial dealings between him and foreign powers, for example, um, and as well as maybe looking for further information on tax. So this is going to be a big concern uh, for Trump going forward. He's going to have to deal with that whole issue on a kind of personal level, if you like, now with Democrats in control. And as I say, we don't we've you know we don't know what's going to happen on the Mueller investigation. There will probably be some kind of report from um, Robert Mueller in the next few months uh, and definitely in the in the second half of Donald Trump's presidency. So that's going to be a whole new chapter. Because it seems uh, clear there's, there, there's not much doubt that Democrats look back 20 years or so to the, the, the impeachment of Bill Clinton, which never went any further than the House for the reasons which you, you said, because yeah. the two-thirds majority in the Senate was never going to happen. And they actually suffered as a result of pursuing that yeah. process and they suffered I, electorally as a consequence. You're right. And I think that's weighing on Democrats. And also the fact then that that can be used by Republicans. One of the most interesting things to watch, I think, now will be that in one sense, this could be a, a good thing for Donald Trump as he goes forward uh, in into the presidential election campaign for 2020. Having a foil, if you like, having an opposition in the House will allow him to, you know, to pass the blame, to pass the book when his p- big proposals inevitably will not get passed. I mean, he's already had a problem getting through a lot of his proposals when Republicans were in uh, control. Now it's very unlikely he's going to get issues through on, say, immigration, for example. Um, the whole healthcare debate is now going to reopen up in, in Congress. And so, as I say, it actually, ironically and counterintuitively, could be a good thing for Donald Trump. You know, the, the most cynical among us would say that, you know, Donald Trump really was not that engaged with the House, the House race. Really, he's more concerned about his own personal prospects in 2020 rather than uh, Republican prospects uh, in Congress in the 2018 election. So as I say, having Nancy Pelosi, who's really become a hate figure on the right, she's kind of taken over from Hillary Clinton as a target for a lot of vitriol uh, by Fox News, by conservative commentators. So having her in the House may work to Donald Trump's advantage. Of course, we don't know if she's going to become the leader. There's a lot of opposition within her own party about this. That's going to be a key thing, thing, thing to watch uh, in the next few days here in Washington, how that pans out and whether she's going to be able to bring her own party with her. Um, She's seeking a second uh, go uh, as House Majority Leader. And at 78 years of age, some people think that she, she they, they need to face a change in the Democratic Party. Indeed, that, because uh, because you've obviously you've got an influx of, of new, younger representatives in the House of Representatives, lots of women in there mm-hmm. as well, that 
the shape of the future Democratic Party, I mean, you know, the presidential election starts here, basically. It starts mm. today now, doesn't it? The, the contest for the Democratic nomination. And, and I wonder what influence these results or what, what readings people will take from these results in terms of trying to figure out what kind of Democratic candidate should run in 2020. Yes, look, it's a very good question. And I think people were looking for guidance from this election. But there are mixed messages here from the Democratic Party. On one hand, you've got these kind of new faces um, like the governor candidates in Georgia and in Florida who look like they have not won their races. These were kind of more radical on the left of the party, um, kind of Obama-style figures, but they have not. They've done well, but they have not uh, won their seats. So that that's a problem um, from that wing of the party. But yet you've got a lot of women candidates. For example, in Pennsylvania, that state has no women candidates at the moment in Congress. Four women, new women candidates running for Democrats have now won seats in Congress for Pennsylvania. One woman I interviewed, Chrissy Holahan, uh, I spoke to her last month in Pennsylvania. She's just won her seat. She was, you know, a, a fantastic story. She had never run for politics before. She organized a bus to go to the Women's March two years ago in uh, Washington. And she, then she decided to run for Congress. She's now just got in. So you've got a lot of these new figures, new women candidates who who have, uh, who are going to make their mark on Congress. So um, it was going to be interesting to watch very, very soon, really, is how they are going to respond to Pelosi whether they're going to go behind Pelosi um, or whether they're going to kind of ask for a kind of a new leader uh, in Congress. And the, and, and the whole debate now is whether, you know, um, what Democrats need to do going forward in 2020, because that debate between the Clinton and Sanders wing of the party has never really been resolved. Uh, and it's a key problem now for Democrats going forward in 2020. And, and look, we still got a, got more than a dozen candidates that could be running in 2020. We're no closer to seeing who might emerge now as a candidate for Democrats um, in the next few months uh, to take on Donald Trump in 2020. Presumably, I mean, we're probably still at this point um, today and Wednesday looking for a bit more detail from exit polls and the type of, you know, who voted mm. and how many people mm. voted. The, the, the path to victory, if there is such a one for the Democrats in 2020, seems to, seems, seems to go down two routes. One is the advances which they have made in suburban middle-class areas that perhaps mm. previously voted Republican, particularly among women and college-educated women, and they've they've seen some, some pretty good results uh, this week in those. The other one is to kind of claim back those Rust Belt states, which is what really delivered uh, the 2016 election to Donald Trump. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there are some positives and negatives there. West Virginia, for example, is a state that, re- that, that epitomizes this huge shift we've seen uh, by these Rust Belt states that used to vote so strongly Democratic have now moved to Republican. West Virginia voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump in 2016, and yet the Democratic senator, Joe Manchin, actually won, maintained his, his seat in West Virginia. It was one of the few victories for Democrats. So that's a positive sign. Um, but in Indiana, another one of those Midwestern states, um, the Democratic senator did not win that. Uh, Donald Trump had campaigned there right before the election. Uh, also worrying, I think, for Democrats now will be the fact like swing states such as Ohio, such as Florida, which again was so tight in this election. Um, the governorships have gone to Republicans in Ohio and Florida um, in those two states. That does not really bode well going into 2020. Governors, you know, have a lot of power. There's a lot of redistricting decisions coming up in 2020. And just going into the 2020 elections, the fact that those states have kind of gone Republican uh, will be a worry for Democrats. So they're going to be looking at those kind of still swing states to make sure that the right candidate there that's going to win over those voters. Thanks very much, Suzanne. Now stick with us and we'll be joined in a sec by Fia Kelly and David McWilliams. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather. The traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. David McWilliams, you're very welcome on your first visit to our politics podcast. Thank you, it's great to be here. I see you're a beautiful, uh, beautifully bound, uh, quite brightly coloured book. Yes. Hot off the shelves, Renaissance Nation. Yeah, Renaissance Nation, Nation. yeah, it's, it's, it's the cover is, um, it's just a photo pink. of, it's very, very pink, and it's a photo of the, I think it's it's the moment the result is announced on repeal day last May. 
And we because the book starts on that day, so we decided that's that's what we're going to put in the cover. Yeah, so it is pink. It doesn't look like a typical economics book. You're right. Well, and it's and pe- people who are familiar with your books will be familiar with the idea of there are a number of personas and characters are fleshed out as representative of 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 modern Ireland. And we might come to some of those in a minute. But one of the things that struck me, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, is that uh, you're making an argument really about the way in which Ireland has changed, and that there's a connection between the uh, the the open of contemporary Irish society with the economic success of Ireland over the last 30 years. Those two things are linked. Yeah, what you, what you see historically, starting with the Dutch Republic in the late 18th century, is an extraordinary and relentless connection between what I call commercial self-expression, which is commercial economic vibrancy, and moral liberalism. And the Enlightenment. So what you see is that societies tend to get rich when they become tolerant. And my sense is exactly the same thing happened in Ireland. So if you look back at Irish GDP and Irish economic performance from which we do in the book, which I do in the book, from 1919 to this year, what you see is uh, from 1919, so more or less from independence, uh, the Irish economy does nothing. It underperforms dramatically vis-a-vis the rest of our neighbours, vis-a-vis actually previous Irish uh, performance uh, until about 1990. And the reason I believe this is is because we had an incredibly dogmatic, censorious state and a censorious coalition against commercial self-expression. And that coalition is as weird as... I have a book, I have a piece in the book about Yeats. It's as weird as the, as the high arts, journalism the intelligentsia, academia, the left wing, and of course the church. And the church, of course, being anti-commercial, the eye of the needle stuff, that basically it was. this is not a very good way to live your life. So once these strictures begin to dissipate, and once the individual begins to emerge as central to the Irish story, which is the way I, I see the culture wars, then what you see is an extraordinary coincidence where the economy begins to take off. And this, I think, is the key, that when you are enlightened you give dignity to creative self-expression, that the most creative economic machine in the world is this thing between our ears. This is what drives economics. It's not in invention, it's actually innovation. And innovation is when you create something out of nothing. And that's what human creativity is. And when you allow that to become unleashed because you actually take the church away, you take lots of the state away, you take a huge amount of strictures against commercial self-expression, the place flourishes. And I think that's what happened here. So that's essentially small L liberalism? Is it is small L liberalism, um, absolutely. And it's, 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 it would be called the Enlightenment. We decided to avoid the Enlightenment from about 1921 till about 1991. And uh, we paid the price for piety with poverty. And that's it. Some of the things that you say in the book, you say them in a, in a very particular kind of style, but they remind me of, we had a conversation on this podcast with Pascal Donoghue uh, a few weeks ago, or a couple of months ago, I suppose now, and he talked a little bit about the radical centre, which is a phrase which crops up in the book as well. So is is this book, The Radical Centre, if it were written by Paul Howard as Ross Carroll Kelly? <laughs> if it was written by Paul Howard as Ross how many insults did you get in there? Uh, that's quite. That's quite a few, actually. Oh, it's quite an achievement. One of our one of our one of our finest columnists. I'm No, but it, it it basically what I've been very intrigued about is when I was a kid, uh, we were told that there's a pretty obvious dichotomy in politics between left and right. Okay, so it's kind of binary. You're either left or you're right. And I was always intrigued with what happened to the centre, where actually most people live. So I always find this really hilarious that political commentators and economic commentators demand that you occupy some rather extreme and pretty unidimensional set of views. So you're either over here on the right or you're over here on the left. And when I look around Ireland, I think we're all kind of squidgy in the Mm. centre. And what we've done over the last 25 years, I think politically, has been reinforced the competence of the centre, the primacy of the centre, And ultimately, the centre has delivered extraordinary economic benefits to, not to everybody. You know, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the economic performance of Ireland is so much better than any of our neighbours 
that it's really worth focusing on, that it's so much better than Britain, so much better than France, so much better than Germany. In actual fact, Ireland's living standards have doubled in the last 25 years, and that is an achievement that has not been seen in Europe since the 1950s. So is it the case, maybe, Fick, that um, the secret of that economic success lies in that very political squidginess? I would say so, and like Irish politics, Irish Elections are always pitched at that squeegee centre, as David said, you know. The last election not being the most obvious example of where the squeegeeness, I think, came to the fore because we had a squeegee kind of view that the centre had decided that we wanted fairness back and we wanted to restoration of services, all that type of thing. And the most uh, kind of perfectly pitched message at that was the Fianna Fáil message. You know, the centre had moved from what was seen to be a kind of away from a Fianna right of centre view to this left of centre view, but it's all around the centre. It's just margins of difference. So, the, you know, the, the PDs nudge it a couple of inches in one direction for five years and then somebody else... The Greens yeah, and, 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 and as, as, as has been written about in our paper, I think Pat wrote his column about a couple of weeks ago or Saturday just passed that the centre is now... Yeah, Pat did the, write that one, yeah. The centre is now to the left, so the centre of mm. gravity in Irish politics is to the left now, but it's still a variation of the centre and the skill of the centre is moving to where it perceives the public view to be, so the, the public demands a certain, you know public set of assumptions has moved in a certain directions so the centre moves with it and that's the strength of the centre that it can modify itself along those baselines and Pascal Donoghue's idea of the radical centre is of that m- well, viewpoint as well and Leo Varadkar's pitch is you know what David just said there is exactly what Leo Varadkar said when he ran for the leadership of Fine Gael and like you know there is no left there is no right it's the Macron type thing you know there is the centre the centre is everything now but the trouble we have I think now and if you translate that into electoral viewpoint is that the centre is dominant now, but it hasn't yet decided to accommodate itself in a governing formation that is traditional by the way we would know it here. Yeah. Like that, we have a centrist government, we have a centrist doll, but we have a government that's at the whim of other people as well, if you know mm. what I mean. That the, 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 the natural outworking of this will be to be that the centrist parties would just join the coalition because they're all the same, but they're not going but, to. But we know what radicalism gives us. It gives us things like Brexit. It gives us things like Donald Trump. Mm. It gives us things like the five-star movement in Italy. It gives us things like Le Pen. So whether it's radical left or radical right, it's really unattractive. Mm. And I think socially what's interesting about Ireland, this is why I talk about, for example, what I was very intrigued with friends uh, of mine and people that I, I was reading about in the papers were very, very happy to vote repeal on Friday the 25th of May and line up in a Catholic church on Saturday the 26th of May with their children in communion dresses. And this is what I mean by the centre. Mm. It's a sort of ambivalent place that you know, don't necessarily need to align yourselves to some sort mm. of cultural or social or, as a consequence, political... You don't have a flag. You don't have you, a flag. That you the, wave. Which is, you know, isn't, there, is, isn't there a difficulty for that? We did a whole segment of this podcast with, with your other fellow columnist, Fintan O'Toole, about that uh, famous Yeats poem, The Second Coming, Things Fall Apart, The Centre Cannot Hold. Uh, why? The, the best well, lack but, of all conviction, the worst of all of intensity. Of, well, yes, and, and isn't that the difficulty with with centrism because it has a diff- I mean you you write quite extensively here about the uh, the the self-hatred of the bourgeoisie um who are I suppose you know where the, where the center kind of resides well, more than anything the, and that they're reluctant to articulate there is a what piece really on, on 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 an incident in a Nick Cave concert not even a concert a discussion actually uh and the discussion was about novels uh, it ended up uh, talking about Sebastian Barry uh, which was a rather middle class thing to do I suspect and then once Nick Cave mentioned middle class everyone guffawed and I was thinking hold on a second you know you know you're you're hardly at a happy Mondays concert but that's you know not I mean? a, but that's not a particularly Irish thing is <laughs> no, it? I, the, no, the, the, that whole bohemian so, bourgeois so, so thing for you know, example, uh, know. Uh, there's a big piece on, on why Yeats uh, I compare it's really interesting when I was in school the other Yeats poem that most people know is the fumble in the greasy till line okay and I remember being in school at about 15 when we did this, and I said, hold on a second. Here we have the arch-poet of the revolution, the narrator of the Irish story, has decided of all the enemies in Ireland that the real enemy of the nation is the small businessman, the entrepreneur, the person who creates jobs, the person who creates something out of nothing. And I thought in the pantheon of enemies that we have, that was a rather bizarre thing to say. But it was cultural snobbery. It's got to do with where Yeats came from. It's got to do with the intelligentsia looking down their nose on people who actually get up and go to work 
and make a few quid. And isn't that, I mean, Yates came from a particular Anglo-Irish kind of a background, yeah, but, it, but the, doesn't, the, that, doesn't that continue over the story of this state and to this day, that there's a suspicion of mm. people in, quote, in trade, no, pre- preference is, that people is, would be in professions? This uh, has changed completely. No? Really? And this is, there is amongst, and we, I talk about it in the book quite a bit, uh, what I call the testocracy, which is the aristocracy of people who can pass exams. And in Ireland, you can only, you cannot be in any way, let's say you can't demonize any one part of society, and you should not demonize, with the exception of people who fail exams. I've always noticed this, that basically the Ireland is split into people who pass exams, who are elevated, deity status, in the leaving cert and grinds and all that, and people who can't pass exams, which are lots and lots of people who end up going on to doing all sorts of wonderful things. But there is that story. It, only, it, it still exists in the education system. But what you look at, if you look at the attitudes of Irish people, they have shifted dramatically towards dignifying the self-employed small business person who actually is the essential alchemy of a, a democratic system. Has there been, you know, you often see in different countries and different political systems really overt pitches to who you talk about there, the small business person, the entrepreneur, the doers, the strivers, the people who group. We haven't really seen that in an Irish political context, though, because it seems to me that our main parties are still connected to this kind of catch-all mentality that, you know, we don't target one because we then alienate the other. So do you think we have seen that? We just had an electoral beauty contest, I use the word beauty advisedly, in which three of the contenders were were self-made businessmen. Yeah, but but that, that was kind of a more of a there's, there's no, been that, no, there's 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 been no real heavy pitch towards that type of person that David speaks about. And what's interesting is if you look at all the surveys of Irish attitudes, Irish attitudes have swung very dramatically towards offering a lot of dignity to to the people who actually make the economy click at the coalface. And I think that's really interesting. And what interests me was whereas Yates was very happy to demonise them because he was from an upper class mm. Anglo-Irish. It's much nicer, it's a much easier way to make a living to get rent off peasants. Believe me, it would be great if we could all do that. That's what the Anglo-Irish did. Much harder to actually go out and make a crust. And the interesting thing is it's Joyce, of all our greats, who actually elevates an advertising copywriter, Bloom, as his central hero. So you have on the one hand, you have Yeats talking about romantic Ireland, inventing stuff off the top of his head. Nonsense. Total nonsense. But Joyce says, hold on, here's a real person. I'm going to make him the hero. So what I have been always intrigued about here is how the intelligentsia demonize the small guy. That's not particularly or peculiarly Irish. But I mean, we, that's, you know, that's rare, a, element rare, of the way class structures but work. We rarely, work. we rarely go there and have a look at this mm. in this country. So I just remember when I was in school... The poetry in school really struck me as a bizarre bias against a small person who not only was not a class or war national enemy, but was actually the very creature that was preventing us from bankruptcy, which I always thought was quite... There's a not a lot of good poetry about um, about entrepreneurship now, to be fair. No, no, I'm not talking about... I mean, yeah, but I mean, let's not be cynical, because what has happened here is a profound shift in the psyche of the country, which has driven an outrageously impressive economic performance, which I believe is rooted in culture rather than hard economics. And where's all that now? I mean, this is this book is very much a snapshot of now. It's the events that have happened since the uh, since the yes vote and the uh, <coughs> to repeal the Eighth Amendment. How does that differ from where it was when you wrote? The Pope's children, or yeah. before the crash, or in the immediate aftermath of the crash. I think. I think what what really intrigued me uh, about the country was the recovery from the crash, because I had thought that we would probably quite likely follow the Japanese experience, which was you get a massive housing crash, collapse in national wealth through the housing uh, crash, banks go bust, etc. And it takes a long, long time for the economy to recover. Um, and what surprised me was how quickly it recovered. 
And now we have the problems of too much demand, not too little demand. But then it also struck me that it's a generational thing, that my generation, our generation to a degree... Well, not the sets, years in mind. Sets the, yeah, sets the narrative, okay? Middle-aged people. Mm-hmm. And our narrative is that 2008 was a disaster. Uh, it was a disaster economically, it was a disaster politically, etc. And that's... The 2008 was the year it all ended. But for another generation, 2008 was the year it all started, okay? So if you look at... 2008 is the start of the iPhone which has totally changed people's lives, totally changed people's work. It's the year that Facebook comes down the road and decides to put its headquarters here. It's the year Twitter is founded. It's the year Instagram is founded. It's the year in which you get a massive, massive change in technology, but for the first time ever, technology available to average people. Because normally what happens is technology changes and some people avail of it, but usually usually there's a technological divide in societies. The rich have the technology and the poor don't. But something about the internet, particularly the iPhone, has democratized that. And this has profoundly changed the way the economy works, the way the labor market works. We've got to what I call a stage of capitalism without capital. You don't need capital anymore. You just need ideas. And interestingly, so for my generation, 2008 signifies the end but for younger people, it signifies the beginning of their lives. Is, and this, and is there any overlap between the two, though? Is, is there any way in which countries have experienced a crash like ours that, say, people of an older generation say that was the end, people of a younger generation say it's the start, but is there any overlap where the preceding younger generations take lessons from what happened in 2008 and they carry forward the lessons that they saw happening to generations both yes. them in future decades and is that addressed or like what way do you see that playing out like say if you, someone was in their teens for example when yeah, they in, saw the crash in, in and were in a household yeah. which saw everything fall apart do then they become more frugal more responsible when they get into their 30s and 40s when they are in positions of power absolutely in actual fact there's a lot of uh, very interesting American books in particular as Americans write a lot more of this on and, and I subscribe to that. You know the way like most economists or, or commentators believe in linear progress, that you start here and things get, get considerably better all the time and that we end up and we're, we're going towards a better world. And it's linear. I actually think it's much more likely to be cyclical, that an extra generations matter enormously, that the cycles of life are really quite interesting. You know, the cycles of autumn, fall, winter, the, the cycles of we, we tend to last 70 years and then we die. You know, all these sort of things are actually... I find really quite interesting and because they're philosophically the antidote to this linear scientific progress idea. And I think you're absolutely right in generations. I think that the foundation experiences of different generations has a profound impact on how we subsequently turn out. And as a child of the 70s and 80s, I think that... uh, the impact of those years on me and my generation had really substantial uh, legacy effects on our on our lives. Like what? Well, I think that, for example, look, we, we, we talk about, uh, take, for example, the culture war. Uh, if you were brought up uh, in Ireland in the, I say a, a child in the 19, late 1970s and early 1980s, um, your, the mine, attitude towards the establishment and towards particularly the church and towards moral strictures uh, became radicalised very early, very, very early. I don't see that in my kids at all because it's gone. Right? So that's a really obvious example that when you look and talk to people of my generation, the anti-church stance is very, very deep. And I think that is a function of the fact that we were run by a reasonably crazy aristocracy at the time. So I think that's a really, really interesting and obvious example of how generations change. I look at my kids, they don't see any of that. What about a counter-argument which is made from the um, the one-third of the country which didn't vote yes in the, uh, in the abortion referendum and takes a different view, which is essentially that we've replaced one set of uniform rules that everybody's supposed to believe with another set of uniform rules that everybody's supposed to believe. In other words, it's not a liberalism of the free and frank exchange of a wide variety of views sparking off each other in a creative way. It's a bunch of people who agree with each other. They just agree with the other side from the side they agreed with 30 years ago. Well, that's precisely the argument that was uh, made 30 or 40 years ago as well. Uh, I, I, I think that there is absolutely 
no evidence to suggest that there is a conspiracy to silence countervailing attitudes in this country. I don't see that at all. I see that democracy has been very vibrant. I see it as being extremely critical. And I'm not sure that there is a movement abroad that is subscribed to by the majority uh, to silence opposition. I think the opposite is the case in Ireland. I think when I look around the world, when I travel around the world, I, I'm really, I come home and I'm enthusiastic about the uh, relentlessness of the democratic censor. That's one of the things about David's book is it's extremely optimistic. It's very positive about where we are now, which is not something we hear a lot in contemporary discourse, is it? Yeah. Well, when do you ever hear like that everything is going well, relatively speaking, from an overall broad brush view? No, you don't, but that is the argument that people... Is that just a human flaw? I think so, and it's a flaw of the political system where, whereby... Not a flaw, but it's the nature of a political system where discourse is dominated by opposition to what is being done, that there's not much time to dwell on the successes of the past whereby the governing party or the government are trying to say, well, look at everything we've done and naturally people don't want to really dwell on that so they move on and therefore the discourse is dominated by what's wrong. So I think that is the challenge in making that argument that how do you then convince people that everything is not as bad as it seems? Do you? That is it immediately comes across as a smoke argument for yeah, the people who are benefiting it's, it's, from whatever, it's, it's, whatever the, the it's smoke. But it's speaks to the argument. Right it goes back to the argument of the centre. That the centre is generally open to that. The centre generally can sort out the noise from personal circumstances. I'm better off than I was four or five years ago. The country is better off than it was four or five years ago. That's the nature of a election-winning campaign that you can convince people. Okay, look, we've done something, but there are flaws. We're not there yet. You make people feel broadly content with the way the country is being run. And I think there is a bit of a sense of that at the moment. Like, you know, if you look at the way politics is, there's a broad satisfaction with the performance of the government, the economy, the way Brexit's being handled, for example, while acknowledging the flaws, as David said, of recovery, yeah. which is strains on services, strains on the housing system, strains on transport. I think there's an understanding that they are generally strains that come about when recovery and economic growth is taking Because hold. there is a critique, say from Finton, who we mentioned earlier, which is that Ireland, with all the positive things that it has, could and should be a much better country in the way we run it for the benefit of all its citizens. Well, I think it's very important uh, never to let the perfect bully the pretty good in any aspect of life. That when things are pretty good, and I think what has happened in Ireland, given where we've come from, which was, you know, pretty abject poverty for a long, long time, uh, given where we could have gone. Uh, things are pretty good here when you compare us with the rest of the world. But there's always a weakness or an inclination to have a notion of the perfect mm. and to allow that notion of the perfect bully the pretty good. Because progress, and this is what the book is about, it's about this notion of human progress. Well, it's about Lots of other things, but at the core is that is that progress is something that you work on incrementally. Mm. You, you change, you fix, you get a little bit better at things, you go again, you get a little bit better, you go again, and you work towards getting better. The idea that you progress is a process whereby you start at the perfect and you work backwards seems to me really bizarre. I don't, I've never seen anything, whether it's building a house or whether it's writing a book, or whether it's getting up in the morning, the notion that you actually progress by the perfect and you work backwards seems to be entirely... But is that uh, what's driven? Most of the main political no, ideologies no. is a vision of a shining city but, on the hill, what, what characterised in some what, what, way. One of the more interesting developments in Irish politics is this move towards incrementalism. Yeah. Like, you know, gradual, continual change. Like, that's what Pascal Dunne, who speaks about. That's what's at the centre of his political philosophy. And to a certain extent, the philosophy of all, well, Leo Farrakis shares with me on Martin does to a certain extent as well because they've come out of that experience of 10 years ago and it's tuning Irish political expectations towards that incrementalism. And I think that's one of the more interesting developments of recent years, that people seem to be buying into this bit by bit by bit yeah. by bit we get better. But aren't there, and, you know, and I, I, I can see it's my role here is to be the Cassandra and I don't mind no, doing no. that at all. Isn't there, take the housing 
thing, yeah. which you mentioned, which is the thing which is sort of seems to be top, yeah. of, top of the news agenda right now. And the whole business of property and the way we think about property and different generations think about property figures very, very, very large in this book. And it does seem to recur again and again as the original sin underpinning kind of things yeah. that really go wrong well, in Ireland it, it, is property it, it, it and is. the way we deal with it, property. It is. I mean, uh, you know, from, from the economist's perspective, from my perspective as an economist, it's very clear to me that property has destroyed much of what could be better in this country. And by that I mean, basically, land is a, is a resource. You can either use it or you can hoard it. Okay? That's all it is, right? And if you use it, um, what you will tend to find is that rents will fall, property prices will fall, and uh, people will pay a reasonable price for accommodation. Forget the notion of houses and homes and wealth and all that, but accommodation, a roof over your head. What we chose to do in Ireland, and we still do, and, and one of my, one of the things that really intrigues me was that after the massive property crash that we didn't change our relationship officially with mm. property, is that we hoard land and we reward the hoarding of land. So if you look around here, we're in the Irish Times, which is in the centre of town. If you walk down Pierce Street, you walk down Fenian Street, any of these streets here, what you'll see is an amazing amount of dereliction. And dereliction is really vandalism for the landed classes because it's a reflection of a precious resource called land being hoarded and not used. And once you hoard things, you artificially increase its price and you artificially increase its value. And as a result of that, you get a drone class that lives off rents from property mm. as opposed to working for a living. And back to my, our friend Yates. It's kind of neo-Yatesian idea, right? And it strikes me that if we were to introduce, and there's a lot in the book, a site value tax on land, we would basically, it's very, people have to be told again and again, Ireland is amongst the least populated uh, countries in Western Europe with the highest land values. That mm -hmm. makes no sense. Mm -hmm. It only makes sense is if you're rewarding the accumulation of wealth through land hoarding, and then you're giving it a fallacious uh, value, and then the banking system takes that value and turns that value into credit, and therefore you reinforce the position of landowners at the top. That landowning is a feudal form of wealth that made sense in an agrarian society pre-industrial revolution. As I said, that the top... What is really creative in humanity is our brains. That's what makes the whole world tick. That's where the innovation comes in. That's what makes us special. Land does not make us special. So what I would really like to see over a period of time is a political party, a political dispensation that... Well, moves. I mean, it, it has been proposed, I mean, by small parties, albeit. So the Green Party, I think, were the ones who were arguing for a site tax at the time. Yeah. The property yeah, tax but, I, mean, I mean, a proper site tax, like, that, that is substantial, like 50% of the value. Mm -hmm. So you actually change people's mm -hmm. relationship. Yeah, I think that would attitude, change. Attitudes to housing and property are one of the interesting subjects, I think, in Irish politics that lead to a generational divide. That the current... Uh, housing shortage obviously very much affects a certain younger cohort of people. There's a, and there's almost like the younger generation, you speak to people around politics, they kind of acknowledge this as well, but they play to both audiences. That, like, I was struck at the weekend, if you listen to the teacher giving an hour-long interview to RT Radio, and he said, oh, owning a ho house is never easy. It was never been easy. You know, you have to save, and, you know, people usually move into a house and do, do up one room, yada, yada, yada. And the reaction to that amongst people, let's say, above 36, 37, 38, was, yeah, he's dead right. He's absolutely right. That's the way it is. And the younger generation moan. And you speak to people below that age cohort, and, like, there's a lack of understanding amongst people uh, slightly middle-aged and older that things have changed now. Rental prices are so punitive. You can't save for a mortgage while also doing the same thing. And I think that's one of the more interesting remaining generational divides in Irish politics. Do you and think that will ever be speak, expressed in a real political I, way? I can't yeah. see it because the parties speak to both. So if you look, as David says, the, the, the sort of taxing land and taxing property, there's a review of the local property tax, which is a relatively low tax by international standards. Sure. And the priority for the government is to keep it as it is, to keep the level on monetary level at what it is rather than increase it. So there's, there's, I haven't seen yet any party kind of break out and say, OK, the older generation relatively relatively well off when it comes to property land there's a lack of understanding between those and the younger generation and if you speak to TDs who are younger councillors in particular people who are active in political parties they express it but they don't feel that the top of the political system expresses it well 
Because we see this, and you, you 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 write about this in the, in the book, David, and like you talk about the kind of the gentrification of the inner Victorian suburbs of our cities, and you know people buying up red bricks and that. But the, I mean, my experience of um, gentrification obviously has its good sides and its and and its bad sides. But you know, we don't have a Williamsburg in Dublin or a Shoreditch. That kind of <laughs> incredible. Well, indeed, yeah. But that sort of incredible transformation. Like if you're talking about a dynamic economy for yeah, good or ill, no, no, they're no, part no. of an expression no, of that. I, I, I think you don't my, see that. My in my, my the o- the only major fear I have to Irish prosperity is um, the issue of the primacy of feudalism over creativity. And, and I worry that uh, the if, if it's not really sorted, this issue of ridiculously high land values, forcing people to pay far too much of their income for accommodation, and also, unfortunately, um, Enriching a drone class is actually the single biggest threat. And I think it's insidious. And I think that what happens, the interesting thing about economics is it's what comes up slowly really catches you out. You know, this is why I think like things like Brexit, because it's so flagged, you know, what really freaks people out are unexpected things, things that come overnight and it's a shock. What tends to happen when something is really, really well ventilated like Brexit, yes, it's a huge political event, but... It's not necessarily the cataclysmic moment that changes everything. So I think that what is more worrying in Ireland is what I would call the contented class. The people who have done quite well over the last couple of years, basically they have what they hold. You see that particularly well uh, expressed in opposition to planning developments. Mm. This is a really, I, I find this is a, a very revealing mm. attitude. I call the the people in the the I call this place the Banana Republic. And the Banana Republic is uh, not banana in the old fields. It's a, banana means build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. And if you look at, for example, the M50, the land inside the M50, forty-seven uh, percent of it is garden, is green. No other major city in it's the world yeah. would have that. And yeah. the reason it is is because we have allowed a gradual terrorising of the planning and political process to be left in the hands of serial oppositionists. I also think that there's also an element because of the proportional referendation system and the fact that TDs can sometimes get only, you know, a couple of hundred votes makes Mm. a big deal, this idea of NIMTU, which is not in my term of office, right? So basically you have, you know, like you have great ideas... Mm. But somebody else will do them. Because if I do them, I will scratch. There's so many examples of that. Yeah, and, like and, and one, I think one, this, one, these are our big, these are our one, big dilemmas. One, one that springs to mind is one on the north side of Dublin where there's a proposed development of St. Anne's Park. Yes. And politicians who, who are every day out speaking about the ills of the housing crisis and you know how unfortunately there's no houses being built are leading marches on Saturdays and Sundays against these developments. And I think, you know, when you see that, it kind of speaks to your well, point. The, there's a deep cynicism kicks in about, you know, Okay, if not here, then where? Yeah, and I think that this is these these this is what happens when 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 you do when you do have you know thirty or forty years of pretty impressive economic growth, right? Obviously, there's a tendency for the people who've done well out of that to say, "Oh, hold on a second, now we have what we hold." Let's not Let's, rock yeah, yeah, there's a little drawbridge there, and we pull that up, and you know what, St Anne's Park, you know, that's a good example. Uh, there's loads of examples of density, for example, around the city. You know, we should be building up. But you tend to get protesters who typically don't live in the city Mm. but have a notion of what the city should look like. Uh, And ultimately then, you play into the hands of the landowning class and the landowning class sit pretty and enrich themselves. And that, I believe, is our major dilemma. There's a lot about Northern Ireland as well in the book, but there's Mm. our major dilemma is this... The contented class rather than the radical left or right, mm. which sometimes we in the media see outsized threats coming from. Mm. I think the real threat mm. to prosperity is, is from complacency. I'm glad to see we've moved on from that unwanted positivity that we had at the, at the start of the podcast <laughs> into actually, you know, into, 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 into wringing our hands about, about yeah. problems. Um, I, I did want to ask you. I have a kind of single transferable question that I like to ask all economists when I when when I get them in here, uh, and it's kind of runs like this. I haven't still got a satisfactory answer to it from any of them. No, you there, should expect one from me. Okay, go, let's, go let, let's have a go. Um, 
By international standards, most of the data seems to show that in terms of inequality in Ireland, the yeah. Gini coefficient and yeah. these kinds of things, that Ireland is more unequal than, than most equivalent European countries before taxing yeah. uh, and transfers. And after taxing and social welfare transfers, it's in the middle. It's not so bad. Yeah. Now, there are kind of two questions that arise to me out of that. One is, why are we so bad to begin with that we need to do all that all that heavy lifting? And the, the, and the second one is, does that heavy lifting have a very negative impact on our ability to run the society we'd like to run? In other words, because yeah, we're spending really, so much money really redressing inequality, you know, are we not spending what we should be spending on health, on education, on infrastructure? No, it's, so I think on. it's a really good question. The big, because uh, what is true is the welfare system works extremely hard in trying to rebalance the original inequality and does very well. The, the question is therefore, uh, does that matter? I think it matters enormously uh, because I think that if you are depending on the welfare system to give you a stake in society, you're in a very precarious position. Whereas if your wages were higher to start with, uh, which is most uh, income comes from wages, uh, you would feel that you have a better stake in the place. So I think when economists look at the final number and say, oh, look, it's fine, we're, we're the Gini coefficient is bang in the middle, uh, what it doesn't uh, address is the deep psychological impact of living in a society where you know you are behind the average person. And that's what we're talking about. So you know that you start on a Monday morning and you start behind. And uh, inequality is probably in Ireland, wealth inequality is a big problem in Ireland, but it's a big problem everywhere. Uh, and, and we're not really out of the uh, out of the European average on wealth, wealth inequality. But I think we have to work much, much harder at increasing employment and consequently life opportunities for a section of the population that's been left behind. There's, there's no doubt of that. And it starts with education, but also starts with housing. Housing is a huge thing. If you are living a life where your accommodation, your basic needs, right, are precarious and risky and there is a sense that you will lose them. Psychologically, I think this has an extraordinary negative impact. So inequality, and this is why I come back to land all the time, the reason we, are, we have inequality in Ireland is because we are genuflecting at the altar of property ownership. If you look at the societies that have affected real changes in equality, they have affected real changes in wealth structure. And the real changes in wealth structure we have to address is land. So it all comes back to this. Yeah, sure it does. So David's book again, it's called Renaissance Nation, How the Pope's Children Rewrote the Rules for Ireland. Of course, you can read his columns every weekend in the Irish Times. Hope to get you back in again soon. Love to, love to hear. Thanks. And that's it for today. Thanks to Suzanne, to Fiak and to David. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And you can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. Your views are always very welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.